Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times best-selling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. And we've got a great dichotomy in today's episode. We have <laughs> Florida at its most welcoming and equitable and hospitable. And then there's the Florida of today. Yeah, well... <laughs> You were you're writing about waterboards again, which, which in anyone else's hands would be incredibly boring. But you have uh, found a, an angle to it that uh, speaks to the, the culture wars and the governor and uh, a much broader issue than than water management districts. Well, I, I wrote about I, I wrote about I started off by writing about the governor being a comic genius because he's constantly doing stuff that's so ridiculous. <laughs> it gets laughed at all over the country. Uh, and then specifically said, you know, the, the latest example is, you know, blocking these all of these math textbooks because they include uh, indoctrination, quote unquote, mm -hmm. for critical race theory for elementary school kids. And, you know, like like they're being taught that when you solve for X, you're solving for Malcolm X, maybe yeah, or something line. like that. Nicely done. Um, thank you. So, um, <laughs> yeah, the hard part was coming up with math jokes nobody else had made yet. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and and then I related that, you know, OK, you want to talk about critical race theory. Let's talk about critical race theory in the real world in appointments to the boards that manage water in Florida. We've got these five water management districts. They're overseen by uh, unpaid volunteer gubernatorial appointees and not a single one of them that, that have been appointed yeah. are black. They're all white. And and when I asked the governor's office about that. They got very upset at me, uh, and uh, uh, they were not they were not happy. Let's put yeah, it that I, way. I, I caught a little of that on Twitter. If you're not following Craig on Twitter and his uh, sparring matches with the governor's uh, so-called press secretary, follow Craig on Twitter at Craig Times. I think it's important to note because the, the governor and, and his people are trying to stand behind this notion that well, he doesn't see race, and you know these are all appointments made on merit. There is no qualification process or classification process or credentialing process for these water boards. I could serve on one. You could yeah. serve on one. My mom could serve. It's not like you have to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a medicine man to do this. <laughs> but there are no blacks Yeah, in a state yeah. with 17% blacks. I mean, just based yeah. on purely equitable and representation. And only one Hispanic. Yeah. Only one Hispanic. And, and the, you know, the reason the Hispanic guy's on there, he's a home builder. The people yeah. who get appointed are all, you know, people in the building industry, people in real estate or people in the ag industry. And right. that's so what's you can't, really going on here. Yeah, you can't fall back on, well, there were no qualified candidates. You don't, there is no such thing as a qualified candidate for a water management yeah. district. It's a pure appointee. Ron DeSantis could, you know, appoint his dog if he wanted to. What yeah. he hasn't done is appoint a single black person. And there was right. a day and age when the Republican Party would at least higher token candidates. But what we've gone backwards from even token representation of minorities on these boards, they don't, DeSantis doesn't even care about the pretense of appearing blatantly racist, which this obviously is. And and then I kind of tied it into the whole split oak forest thing at the end where the <laughs> board of gubernatorial appointees said yes to building a toll road right through this preserve so and that's, that's how we uh, sadly started last week's episode and the toll road will be built and the road builders and the developers once again get their way over uh popular public sentiment and i was actually going to try and 
take time out of uh, my working vacation in New Mexico to call in and and give my comments to that uh, committee when it was meeting. And I'm glad I didn't waste my time because it was obviously well, a lot of people. Did, a lot of people went. A lot of people went. A lot of people showed up online. I listened to the whole thing. It did went you? on for hours. And oh my! Um, in the end, the board said, "Well, you brought us some good points, but they're not points that we're." we should be considering and therefore we're voting on what we're voting for what the local government wants. Interesting that, that the voice of the people is not worth considering. I mean, on its face, what is that? And that's, that's absurd. Yeah. 86% of the voters in orange County said, we don't want this, but they went ahead with it anyway. You can read Craig's column, Florida Phoenix.com. And if you need to get your mind off this mess, how about <laughs> Moat Marine Laboratory and uh, the aquarium down there in Sarasota? Visit Sarasota, as always, sponsors the podcast. I, we should really probably talk more about Moat Marine with our Visit Sarasota sponsorship than we Moat's do. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I think we kind of take it for granted. Well, it's Moat a good Marine, place course, to visit. Everyone yeah. <laughs> knows what Moat Marine is. You know, why <laughs> it's just like on the, the list, like the, yeah. the Ringling Museum or, or, or Selby Gardens. But hey, yeah, Moat Marine Laboratory is not only doing cutting edge uh, marine research. It's open to the public like an aquarium. And now through August 7th, they've got an exhibition all about sharks from uh, a National Geographic uh, expedition leader and and explorer. So you can check out Moat Marine Laboratory online on all the the social media. That is a great afternoon uh, with the kids or or without the kids. If you're interested in in many of the topics we discuss on this show, uh, you know, red tide and dolphins and sea turtles and sharks and manatees and all that kind of stuff, Moat Marine Laboratory, it's an absolute must, top of the list, First thing to do when you visit Sarasota and to start planning your next trip to Sarasota, go to visitsarasota.com. And now that takes us to this week's guest who shares a fascinating story through the experiences of the people who lived it. David L. Powell is the author of 90 Miles and a Lifetime Away, Memory of Early Cuban Exiles. Give us a little overview, Craig. Well, uh, he he did something really interesting. He 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 is not himself Cuban. He's an an attorney from Tallahassee. He has you know really has no background in this stuff. But from hearing from some friends, he learned about the various experiences that people went through as they fled Cuba once Fidel took over. And he started interviewing people and thinking this would make a great story. Somebody needs to get these people on record talking about what it was like for them mm-hmm. to leave their homeland, to leave everything behind, and come to. Florida and try to establish themselves and make new lives. And the stories are, are just riveting. They're, they're, they're all just riveting. And he's got them organized in such a way that it follows a sort of a chronological pathway. So you can follow yeah. the, the changes in history as things went along. It's just a, it's a great book. This was Cuban immigration to Miami and South Florida before Marielle in 1980, yes. the period we're talking about here from when Castro took over in 1959 to about 1973, 600,000 Cubans came to the United States. 90milesbook.com is the website. David L. Powell, this week's guest. David, th- this is a fascinating book, um, and I really like the way you put it together. What first attracted you to collecting these stories of, of these fascinating people? You know, I've lived in Florida since uh, 1975. I, I moved down here as a reporter for the Associated Press and spent a lot of time in Miami and uh, subsequently in Tallahassee. And, and then later as a lawyer for 30 years, 
I got to know a lot of Cuban Americans in uh, business, uh, professions, government, uh, nonprofits, the arts. And uh, as I got to know them and, and learned something about their stories, I was just drawn to them because they all have great stories uh, about uh, what they remember about Cuba uh, and, uh, and what, their, what their lives were like once they got here. And so I just thought it would make a, uh, a terrific book. Uh, and frankly, an important book for us to remember as we have to deal with the refugee crises of our own time. That's a good point. Did, did you run into anyone who said, in effect, how dare you, a non-Cuban, try to collect these stories of, of Cubans who immigrated here? No. And in fact, I was very concerned about that at the outset, uh, mm-hmm. that I'm not Cuban-American, that I don't speak Spanish, that I, I don't come out of that experience. And so um, I spent the first, uh, before I really committed to the project, I spent uh, about a year and a half while I was still practicing law, uh, talking to people and uh, and doing my due diligence, studying the Cuban exile experience and the history of the island and so forth. And I had three really good friends who uh, came out of that Cuban exile experience that I just asked them, look, is is it a mistake for me to be the one to try to tell this story? And they all three had the same answer. They said, no, actually, you're a perfect person to do it because you don't come with any emotional baggage or any preconceptions. You can be impartial and, and objective about it and, uh, and relate you know, the stories that we have to tell uh, dispassionately and, uh, and accurately. So you know, they pretty much persuaded me that uh, rather than my not being a Cuban, Cuban American, not being a disability, it was, in fact, an advantage. I think it helps that you allowed them to tell the stories in their own words, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. I, I don't know about you. I, I've been a huge believer in oral history for, for many, many years. I used it as a research tool when I was in graduate school. Some of the best books that I've read over the years were oral histories, like uh, My Soul is Rested by Hal Raines, your former. That's a great one. That's a great one. Yeah. Times. Uh, yeah. Great, great oral history of the civil rights movement in the in the Deep South. Uh, uh, the Good War by Studs Terkel mm-hmm. about the American experience in World War II. So I've always been drawn to oral history because I think it has a, a, a great facility for bringing readers into the story and helping them understand what real people experienced when they were going through these uh, important historical events. Yeah, so I thought is, it would be a perfect a perfect vehicle for the story of the early Cuban exiles. Right. It's not an academic text. It's not based on uh, the expert testimony of professors and researchers. It is based on first person experiences. I was going to ask you about the oral history nature of the book, and, and, and you address that well. So I, I'll take it in this direction. What was lost in previous uh, books and scholarship on this topic or overlooked because it hadn't been focused on first-person storytelling and, and the experiences of the, the people who are actually the exiles, not the people who studied the exiles? I, I would put it this this way, Chad, the, um, th- there's a wealth of literature out there, both scholarly and, and je- directed at a general audience about the Cuban exile experience. Most of the scholarly work 
is is what you would expect for scholarly literature. I mean, it's it's based on original research, surveys, that sort of thing, and it has its place. And I found many of those books to be very useful uh, in my own studies on trying to make sure I understood the exile experience. There were a couple of uh, oral histories about very specific episodes of the Cuban exile experience for the period that I'm covering, which is 1959 when Fidel Castro assumed power uh, to 1973, which was the end of the second wave. All of this was before the famous Mario boat lift of 1980. What I discovered when I really was digging into it was there were a couple of oral histories, one that dealt with the Bay of Pigs, one that dealt with Operation Pedro Pan, the two most uh, famous episodes, if you will, uh, from that, that period of the Cuban exile experience. And they were very good for, 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 for what they intended to do. But nobody had attempted to do an oral history that told the broader story, the many different episodes about, for example, uh, the Cubans who went to Spain first before they came to this country. Those who, uh, once they got here, received um, you know, loans from the United States government to go to college, the, the Cuban loans that had been largely forgotten about, but which trained um, many Cuban exiles to be builders and leaders today. And so yeah, I, didn't, I, I didn't know about that until I read your book. Yeah. yeah and, and go ahead and de- detail that right away, David, because we'll loop back around to it. These, these college loan programs for Cuban immigrants. Well, when President Kennedy took office in early 1961, we were in the midst of a crisis of the Cuban refugees uh, stepping off the plane in Miami, hundreds of them every day. And at that point, the government had taken under President Eisenhower very limited steps to try to deal with that, that crisis. Kennedy immediately set up what was called the Cuban Refugee Program. And it was the most generous refugee assistance program in the history of the United States before or since. And it had many components, for example, based on need standards, income support, food support, uh, medical care, job training, job placement, uh, subsidies for the Dade County schools that were enrolling all these Cuban children. For me, the most interesting part of the Cuban refugee program that Kennedy set up was called Cuban Loans. And it was initially no-cost loans for Cuban refugee children to go to college if they met certain need standards. And, and subsequently, there was, there was a change, and it was made uh, minimum 3% interest um, on the loans, which weren't due for repayment until after graduation. And uh, as well as loans that were available for students going to professional schools uh, and uh, medical school, law school, what have you. I had never even heard of these, knew, knew not a thing about it until very first interview I had, I was talking to a friend of mine who had gone to college on an athletic scholarship. And I said, well, how did your brothers go to school? Uh, because they also went to college. And he said, uh, he said, well, they went on Cuban loans. And I said, well, what's a Cuban loan? And he said, well, I don't know. I didn't have one. And I had the hardest time finding out about it because there was very little had been written about it in the literature. But ultimately, I did find some secondary sources that addressed it. And then in my archival research, I found much more information. I mean, we spent, you know, 
uh, a lot of money as a country sending these kids to college. And ultimately, the payback has been that many of them are leaders in the Cuban-American community today. Yeah, and I think it's a great example of where there's a will, there's a way. This country has money for free college education, for social safety nets, for uh, welcoming refugees and exiles and mainstreaming them into society with health care and education and housing if we wanted to do it, and we just don't as a nation. So we have cages and walls and machine guns and border security instead. Would, would, was, was the anti-communist element of it, is that what pushed Kennedy to do that? Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah, yeah that, that, there was broad unanimity among Republicans, Democrats, independents, everyone, that uh, the United States uh, needed to step up to this challenge because this was the height of the Cold War. And Cuba, you know, at that period, particularly in the early 60s, was a front burner issue. So the the underlying idea for all the things that we did, and we did a lot more um, as the years went on, but the underlying idea was to show that uh, liberal democracy and a free market economy were far superior as, as national systems to the totalitarian communist system that Fidel Castro put in, into place in Cuba in the early 60s. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a propaganda tool as much as it was genuine uh, support. And uh, regardless of the motivations, it, it certainly did work. And you, you talk about, and, and this I didn't realize, you know, you, you mentioned, we hear so much about Marielle, and, and we've done an episode on Marielle in 1980. It, it remains my favorite single episode of the podcast. But this period, Castro takes over in 1959, 1973. Hundreds of people every day uh, coming from Cuba to Miami, uh, reading your website, uh, going over there at 90milesbook.com. Cuba's not big, but 600,000 exiles from Cuba came during that. That's larger than the population of Miami at that time. That is an astonishing number of people to bring to, you know, initially South Florida, but then, you know, spread out throughout the country. Yeah, it was it was quite a crisis. Um, and I think we lose sight of it today, in part because it's obscured by Marielle and, and, and in part because, you know, by today's standards, the numbers don't quite measure up to what we're currently seeing on the southern border. But, you know, it's a great story. It's a great story that I think, you know, shows, among other things, ordinary people caught in a in a conflict with uh, between historical forces over which they have no control. And mm-hmm. it's a story that shows America at its best. Yeah. Uh, not perfect, but as uh, as a land of refuge and opportunity sure. that it's always been. So, so to that point, aside from the governmental assistance, what sort of reception did these people receive when they tried to find a house, tried to find a job, you know, began living, working, playing in Miami and Florida and, and around the nation? Well, there was good and there was bad, uh, to be real blunt about it. And and my narrators in the book, uh, the 54 people that I interviewed, uh, talk about that. Uh, Some of them uh, encountered discrimination, you know, name calling with with ethnic epithets that I won't repeat here. Uh, But, you know, one man tells the story 
uh, Eduardo Padron, who became the president of Miami-Dade College, tells how when he was first here, uh, he and the people he was staying with uh, until his parents could arrive uh, were looking for a place to live. And he said, you know, we would go up to the door of a of an apartment house that had a for rent sign. And as soon as they saw that we were Cubans, they said, sorry, it's already been let. Uh, so there was a lot of discrimination like that. There were signs that were put up, no pets, uh, no children, no Cubans. Uh, somebody else remembered that uh, as part of their early experience. So, I mean, there were some ugly aspects to the reception that they received. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there were, you know, very uh, heartening instances of how they were received. One of the anecdotes that I heard over and over and over and had never seen in the literature was how individual Cubans were welcomed and befriended by Jews uh, in South Florida and in New York. Uh, and as one of my narrators said, you know, they saw us coming, and the early 1960s was not, not that far after the 1940s, and they remembered what happened to Jews in Europe, and they saw us coming, coming, and we were something that they could relate to. And there's story after story, I didn't have room to include all of them, frankly, hmm. about how they were befriended and how they were uh, supported uh, emotionally and otherwise by Jews in this country. Yeah, that was a that was a really fascinating part of the book. Were how did you pick the people you you interviewed, and was there anybody you you couldn't get, you tried to get, and you just couldn't get them? You know, most of the people I asked for interviews readily agreed. Uh, they they wanted to talk, and that frankly surprised me because you know when you think about it, this was the most traumatic and emotional experience of their lives and their families' lives, leaving everything behind, coming here with virtually nothing, most of them, and then starting all over. Uh, sometimes with great hardship. I was turned down by a few people that I wanted uh, wanted to get, but but nobody that uh, was uh, essential. The vast majority of people readily agreed and were very generous with their time and and really you know exposed themselves and their emotions. I went <laughs> about uh, getting them. I started with friends and then friends of friends and then friends of friends of friends. And one woman who has a unique story was. The friend of a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend of my wife's. <laughs> and that's not exactly six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but you, know, you, get, the, you get the idea. Yeah. And uh, and they were all very forthcoming. Uh, and I, I just that, that was absolutely the best part of the experience of working on the book was was getting to know these people and gaining their trust. Yeah, it's <laughs> dangerous to talk about a group of folks this large, 600,000 as as a monolith and and correct me if i'm wrong here and and certainly individual stories vary some people didn't make it didn't have success struggled mightily but as a group by and large it seems this group of cuban exiles was highly successful went on to be business owners and uh, you know start families why was this huge group of of immigrants who came here like you said with nothing but the clothes on their back why were they so successful as a group, more or less, anyhow? There's a number of reasons to, that explain that, but but you're right. They are regarded as one of the most rapidly successful immigrant groups in the nation's history. And there are a number of reasons for that. Some of them are just chance. Others are the result of very deliberate policies 
set by the United States government uh, by our leaders in Washington. So, for example, there was a large proportion of Cuba's educated middle and upper classes that came over in these first two waves. Okay. They came to Miami, which were, and most of them settled there. And it was a rising city a city that was looking to reinvent its economy. It was not one of the established urban areas like like New York or Boston or Baltimore or Chicago. Yeah, uh, Miami's a very young city. Mm-hmm. It was a very yeah. young city. Opportunity and everywhere, sure. That's yeah. exactly right. And it was a city that needed to reinvent its economy because you know it was just about to, to finish the ride and tourism of the 50s. And so in the 60s, you know, one of the things the Cuban exiles helped to do was they helped lead the way on reinventing Miami's economy as uh, a place for international trade and finance. I mean, one third of the trade and finance between the United States and Latin America today now goes through Miami. And that was simply not true. Uh, you know, when all of this started. But there were, as I said, there were government policies that were very important in this also. One of them was the Cuban refugee program that I talked about earlier, set up by President Kennedy and continued by President Johnson and and others. Another was uh, in 1966, the United States had hundreds of thousands of Cuban exiles here and more were coming Uh, on the freedom flights that constituted the second wave. And yet very few of them had come in with the visas that our immigration laws required at the time. The government made the decision under Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy to let them come in anyway. They were allowed in on parole, it was called. And so we had hundreds of thousands of Cubans in this country without official status under our immigration Mm -hmm. law. So in 1966, Congress passed and President Johnson signed what was called the Cuban Adjustment Act. And what that did was it allowed a Cuban who had come here after January 1, 1959, um, to apply for permanent resident status. And once, in other words, to adjust their status from parole to permanent resident. And once that was done, it was retroactive for up to 30 months. And what that meant in practical terms was the normal five-year wait time that a resident immigrant has to wait before being able to apply for citizenship in this country was cut in half. The Cubans only had to wait two and a half years because their change to permanent resident status had been made retroactive. And the Congress uh, and the president were very clear about why they did it. We want these people to get jobs. Many of them need to be citizens in order to get licenses as doctors or lawyers or what have you. We want them to support their families and we want to tie them to this country. And so that's why the Congress and the president did that in 66. So I think those accumulation of um, happenstance uh, circumstances, as well as deliberate policy choices made in Washington, explain why the the Cuban-Americans were so rapidly successful. Were there any state government policies or state government involvement in any of this? And and who was the governor at this point? There were a number of uh, decisions made at the state level. Uh, When it began, uh, Leroy Collins was governor. And uh, he set up, before the federal government took any steps at all, he set up an employment center for the Cubans in Miami in the government center down there. Subsequently, uh, his successor, I think it was Hayden Burns, had um, some assistance. 
uh, and the uh, Florida Department of Public Welfare uh, partnered with uh, the federal government in administering the Cuban refugee program that was set up by President Kennedy. But by and large, it was federal leadership uh, that was at play here. So the state government wasn't saying, go home, we don't want you. They were as welcoming well, the federal government. Well, there was, there was a certain amount of friction. There's no question about mm-hmm. that. Uh, for example, uh, you know, when President uh, Johnson decided to let more Cuban refugees come on the freedom flights, and we can come back and talk about that in a minute, uh, the response in Florida was, and in, in Miami in particular, uh, was, well, we want these people resettled elsewhere. We don't want them here in Dade County. We're, mm-hmm. uh, as one of the columnists for the Miami Herald said, we're up to our armpits with Cuban refugees already. And in fact, the government uh, under uh, under President Johnson committed to resettlement of uh, something like 80 percent of the refugees within 48 hours of their arrival and pretty much met that standard. But in the ensuing years, many of the Cuban uh, exiles who had been resettled around the country decided to move back to Miami mm-hmm. uh, because of the climate, because family was there, because yeah. it was a much more familiar landscape for them. Sure. Okay, you mentioned the freedom flights. Explain what these were to us. Well, the freedom flights were uh, an absolutely fascinating thing uh, uh, that I I knew about way back in the day, but I completely forgotten about until I got into this. But essentially, in 1965, Fidel Castro told Cubans that uh, if you're unhappy, you can leave. Uh, your, Your relatives in the U.S. can come get you on a boat to a little fishing village called Camarilca near Havana. And so uh, for about six weeks, Cuban exiles charter boats, took them down there, picked up their relatives. President Johnson said, this is a humanitarian disaster in the making. We'll just charter airliners, the federal government, and we'll fly them here. But we want an orderly process. Through the good offices of the Swiss ambassador, uh, the U.S. and the Cuban government negotiated a protocol for doing that. So from 1965 until 1973, twice a day, five days a week, uh, with very few interruptions, the United States sent chartered airliners to Cuba, filled them up with refugees, uh, and brought them back here, and then, uh, in most cases, resettled them elsewhere around the country with benefits available, if they needed it, from the, uh, the Cuban refugee program. Uh, It was an extraordinary uh, humanitarian effort by our government, and one that I think it's hard uh, as we look at the political landscape today to imagine uh, being replicated. Hard, yeah, yeah, impossible. And that's what I was going to follow up with. Imagine that taking place in 2022 with who we just had in the White House, who we have at the governor's mansion in Tallahassee. You're talking about the better part of 15,000 flights paid for by the United States government to bring non-citizens to yeah. this country. It's just, I, I'm 46. I have never heard of that. Uh, I've only lived in Florida 10 years, but I, I'm guessing most people have no idea this ever happened or that anything like it ever happened. And again, it, it goes to show what this country can do in the service of refugees and exiles and immigrants when it wants to. I mean, that's the expense and the coordination, because you would have to have all kinds of 
you know, it's the pilots, it's the ground crew, it's, uh, you know, travel agents, it's the fuel. I mean, that, that is a huge eight year undertaking. It's, it's, it's incredible. It happened. It, it, yeah. And it was it was exactly that. And it was one of the great humanitarian efforts that I think we have lost sight of over the years that uh, that American taxpayers ultimately were responsible for. Do you mind talking a little bit about Operation Pedro Pan, too? Because I don't think that's as well known now as it should be. Sure. Operation Pedro Pan was a surreptitious program set up in late 1960 by the Catholic Church in partnership with the United States government. And essentially what that involved was bringing unaccompanied Cuban children to the United States Uh, before their parents were able to leave uh, to get them away from uh, what their parents feared would happen to them if they were indoctrinated in the Cuban schools under under Fidel Castro. 14,000 of them came to the United States in a 22-month period that ended with the Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962. Of the 14,000, 6,000 were immediately claimed when they got to Miami my relatives or family friends who took them under their wing and took them into their homes. And I've got, you know, testimonies in my book from sure. a number of kids who, yeah. who came over that way. The other 8,000 were taken uh, by the Catholic Church and other institutional uh, providers of care for unaccompanied children. And their costs were reimbursed by the federal government wow. and the President Kennedy's Cuban refugee program. Uh, some of them stayed in uh, foster homes, some of them in orphanages, some of them in group homes in something like 30 states all over the country, most of them in Florida, but a lot of them outside Florida because Florida simply didn't have room for all of them. Some of them were there uh, in that kind of institutional setting for uh, weeks or months. Others, it was years before their parents could get out because you know, one of the things that happened with the missile crisis in 62 was all regular travel between the United States and Cuba was ended by Fidel Castro. And when the missile crisis ended, Castro wanted to resume it. But President Kennedy said no. He was strengthening the isolation policy that he and Eisenhower had set up. And so it was years in some cases uh, until the freedom flights. And 1965, before parents were able to get out and reclaim their uh, reclaim their children. You mentioned a little bit about this, but how did this influx of new people benefit the rise of Miami into the global hotspot that it is for finance and art and culture and food and fashion and everything else? It, it was a it was a lengthy process. There's no question about that, but. But essentially, uh, the Cubans were integral to recreating Miami as an international center for uh, finance and trade. One of the things that happened was many of the Cuban exiles who ended up in this country had friends uh, who went elsewhere because we lose sight of the fact that when Cubans began leaving in 1959, they didn't just come here. There was a diaspora that is still going on. Hmm, and they went yeah. all over Latin America. They went to Europe. What they were able to do once they got settled and began businesses and began accumulating some resources in South Florida, 
you know, they began contacting friends and, and family members in other countries, and they started to do business. And that was a very that was an important ingredient in Miami's rise as a international center for trade and finance. Yeah, that would make sense, you know. And 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 again, being here in America, you don't think about well. Of course, they didn't all come to America. They went everywhere. So it's not only the six hundred thousand Cubans who left Cuba for Florida and America. There are probably another six hundred thousand at least who went somewhere else. So now you're talking about over a million people leaving an island that small. Professionals business and they would set up businesses and their old networks would be established so yeah i mean that 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 diaspora makes all the effect in the world and the you know the brain drain on on cuba not to mention the the finances and the taxes these people were paying and the businesses that that they had established you know had to be even greater still because that's such a small country and this is the you know the, the best and the brightest essentially leaving well, I don't know that anyone else ever was able to determine with accuracy the Cuban diaspora to other countries. I came across some data that showed that uh, in a 10-year period, 70,000, more than 70,000 went to Spain, many of them on their way here, but many of them stayed. But the data for the United States is very, very good, uh, very clear what the numbers were that came here. And I can only imagine uh, how many people were in other parts of Latin America, for example, and around the Caribbean, uh, who were in a position to do business with the exiles in, in South Florida? You, you talked about the the, uh, the Jewish response to the Cuban exiles coming in and, and how welcoming they were because they recognized sort of kindred spirits. Did the Cuban exiles, once they got settled, did they sort of pay it forward by having a similar receptivity to other immigrants? You know, that's a very interesting question that a number of my narrators talked about, and there's literature on this. Uh, and the short answer is, is uh, for many of them, no. There's a phenomenon that uh, uh, some of the scholars have documented by which the early Cuban exiles who came over in the first two waves, 59 to 73, were not as welcoming or as helpful to those who came later, starring, starting with the Mariel boat lift. I mean, if you remember, uh, the Mariel boat lift was quite controversial. In fact, the name Marielitos was originally developed by uh, Cuban exiles as a term of disparagement for those who were coming over. There was a lot of misinformation that came out about the Mariel boat lift in terms of the proportion of the Marielitos who were criminals or uh, had come out of asylums. That was very much overblown, according to the, the, the detailed studies that were done later. But the short answer to your question is that there is a phenomenon where among Cuban exiles, those who came earlier were not as welcoming to those who came later. Was it a class thing? Did they just sort of look down their nose at them because they weren't from that upper or middle class? I, I suspect that was part of it, but probably also what was very important. Those who didn't come over until Marielle had made a calculated decision early on that they were going to stay under Fidel mm -hmm. uh, and they were going to see how things went. And they were hopeful that the system that Fidel was putting into place would deliver on all the promises that he had made. And it was only after that didn't happen that many of them decided to leave. And so some of the people in the first wave essentially looked down on those who had made that decision and essentially looked at them as uh, akin to uh, traitors because mm -hmm. they had 
they had stayed with Fidel for a while and had tried to help the system work. So yeah, there was a real division among the, the earlier and the later Cuban exiles that has been very well documented in the literature. These people uh, who would have come during this period, 60s and 70s, you know, certainly, you know, they have had children, they have uh, grandchildren. Are their descendants, their identity more Cuban, more American? Uh, how do they consider themselves? You know, I think many for, for many of them, it's uh, it's a question. And in fact, some of the narrators in my book talk about that. They talk about the identity questions that they had, particularly those who came over as young children, pre-adolescent children, if you will. But the but the ones who the ones that that I know and the ones that uh, that I interviewed who are you know our contemporaries. I think they I think they have a very interesting blend of uh, uh, affections. Unquestionably, love this country because of all the things that it has done for Cuban Americans and all that it represents. Uh, they all went out of their way talking about that. Uh, and yet, many of them, uh, who, at least those who have memories of Cuba before they before they left, still have an affinity for their homeland and still love their homeland. Uh, some of them have gone back to visit relatives and just to see you know, their old homes. Others uh, will not go back. They absolutely refuse to go back because they fear that anything that they do by going back yeah. will somehow aid the regime, and they don't want to do that. So I think there's a whole complex set of emotions that come into play um, with uh, with these early Cuban exiles that, you know, when you think about it, are very understandable. What kind of reaction have you gotten from the people you interviewed once now the book is out? Very positive. You know, one woman I interviewed uh, texted me uh, after she got the book and she said, I, I got the book. I immediately read my parts of it. And I mm -hmm. sat there and I cried for four hours. And my wow. husband, my husband, who's an Anglo, uh, simply couldn't understand why. And it's because it took me back to that whole episode of my life. I have heard nothing but, but satisfaction from the people who, who told me their stories. And, uh, and that in itself is very gratifying. The book is 90 Miles and a Lifetime Away, Memories of Early Cuban Exiles and Oral History of the Cuban Exiles from 1959 through 1973. 90milesbook.com is the web address. Spell out 90, N-I-N-E-T-Y, milesbook.com. David L. Powell has been our guest in an enlightening conversation. I learned a great deal. David, I'm going to remember this talk for a, a long time to come. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Craig. I really enjoyed sure. it. I mean that, Craig. I am going to remember this conversation and those freedom flights and the yeah, support. The generosity. Yeah. Oh, and not only generosity, the legislation, mm -hmm. okay, that the federal government, our federal government, our federal government, who is so anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, anti-exile, uh, in, in this day and age, even under the, the current administration, which is light years ahead of the previous administration. You know, when, when people talk about, well, there's not enough money for it. Where are we going to put these people? How are they going to live? Where are they going to do? Mm -hmm. We've done this proves it can be done. Yeah. It can be done successfully. Not only can it be done, it has been done. This is an yeah. important story of American history, yeah. not just Florida history. This is the this was the can do, ask not 
1960s of John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society mm-hmm. swinging into action and dealing with it. Yeah, uh, and, and it's interesting to me that that you know after this Democratic administration, these two Democratic administrations did so much for them and 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 got them here. An awful lot of the Cuban Americans today are Republicans and are backing the the party that does not support immigration and yeah. is anti that kind of stuff. And certainly would not have been happy about them showing up in such numbers the way they did in the 1960s. No, and then that you know that's uh, 45 years ago now when when this stopped. And and you know that interesting dynamic between these early exiles and the the Marielitos. You know if this yeah. isn't if this is a topic that interests you the way it does me, there are a number of episodes from the archives that you'll want to go back and listen to. Miami 1980 from our, yeah. our first season, essential. Uh, the episode with Mitchell Kaplan about the Miami Book Fair. We talked a yeah. lot about, about Miami becoming an international city st- thanks to immigration. Uh, the Cuban sandwich <laughs> episode, yeah. which which I yeah. just listened to over again and, and was a, a lot of fun. So, you know, this, and I'm glad uh, you found David and brought this up because so much Scarface, Marielitos, nineteen eighty. Yeah. It's there are a lot so of stereotypes. Is, yeah, and and this six hundred thousand. Craig, I can't get over that mm-hmm. figure for the nineteen sixties and seventies in Florida because you know the the entire state population at that time is ten million. You know, yeah. something like that. I mean, so you're talking about a major to the state, a major influx. Of, well, what? And, and, and try to imagine Miami today without that influx of cubans what would it be like yeah i mean it it made such a change not just in their business but also the culture of the city uh one thing i i I didn't bring it up because it's it's not really in in his book but Mm -hmm. um there's a terrific book called the tales from the fifth street gym by ferdy pacheco the fight doctor who was uh part of that whole cuban uh population there who wrote about how the cuban influx in miami supported the growth and prosperity of the boxing culture there because they, a lot of the mm-hmm. Cuban men were really into boxing, which led to Muhammad Ali, as we know him now, uh, Cassius Clay then yeah. showing up there to train for the big fights. And that's where, that's where he got started was in Miami all because of the Cuban diaspora. Yeah. And that, is, the, the recent Netflix documentary, one night in Miami, I think that yeah. uh, focuses to, to some extent um exactly. on that uh that uh anecdote um wow you know what a, a fantastic fantastic episode that that yep. reminds me when this state wants to it yep. can say with open welcome. arms <laughs> welcome, welcome to, to florida, florida. <laughs>